Hello, Professor Suasua. Welcome to my office. Hello. It was uh, really nice. I attended a lecture which you gave yesterday at our department here in Karlsruhe. And um, I would like you to tell uh, the persons uh, hearing our podcast conversation, what was this talk about? So what was the topic you chose to speak about? The general topic was wave propagation. Uh, wave propagation is an important phenomena for us to understand. We live on, on, on waves. We, we are alive because we vibrate. And uh, our voice can be heard by others because, you know, waves, acoustic waves are propagating on air from, you know, one person to the other. Uh, the ocean is built on waves. There are waves in our blood. There is there are waves in you know quantum mechanics at the at the very bottom of of uh, of materials. So wave phenomena has been always a classical topic in mathematics. It goes back to the you know to the to the 17th 18th century when people understood Newtonian mechanics and then tried to figure out what was the modeling for, say, vibrations of uh, elastic uh, membranes, uh, three-dimensional elastic bodies like our heart, our body, uh, for acoustic waves. There were then uh, some major breakthrough through the modeling of uh, waves by the so-called wave equation by D'Alembert, Kirchhoff, Euler, and many other celebrated mathematicians. And then more recently, of course, when mathematics has started to develop the, the systematic approach of modeling analysis and numerical analysis, this has been a topic of uh, you know, very intensive investigation. As, and as I said, the last step in this say, applied mathematical program for the understanding of wave propagation, the last step is numerical analysis. Numerical analysis means you have to translate these uh, complicated equations and formulas into a, a way that the computer can understand, simulate, and then uh, eventually lead you to nice videos or figures about how these uh, phenomena are propagating. And, and in this process, uh, there is a risk. And the risk is that not only you approximate the, the actual wave phenomena that appear in nature, but that at simultaneously at the same time, you generate some fake dynamics that are purely due to the numerical algorithm, the so-called, say, spurious uh, numerical waves. And, uh, of course, when you are facing important applications like... Uh, you know, uh, image reconstruction or uh, understanding of seismic waves. We, we, we have seen in the past few days how catastrophic it, it can be as, uh, as it occurred in, in Nepal, it can do. So it's, it's very important to make sure that your numerical algorithm is really giving you the approximation to the reality by also eliminating, erasing all these other fake numerical waves that will certainly bring you away from the, from the actual phenomena. So my talk was about wave processes, how relevant they are, how important it is to understand them well, and how uh, tricky it can be when uh, approximating them numerically because most of the numerical algorithms that we have developed have the tendency of, of course, 
being capable of reproducing these correct real physical waves, but also producing these other spurious ones. And then in our lecture, we explain how to, you know, proceed uh, mathematically to eliminate, to filter out these high-frequency waves, and in the end, you know, make sure that you really got a, a good approximation in the sense that you got the, the, the hertz of the, you know, the, the actual body of the wave by, by eliminating also these uh, high-frequency spurious Uh, fake, irreal components. Yes. And um, one um, central point was that the problem comes from only from the high-frequency waves. Yes. So normally low-frequency waves, waves that are long, have a very clear shape, you know, a large uh, support, they are, of course, much easier to compute than very high-frequency, tiny, very rapidly vibrating waves. This is very easy to understand why these other ones are are harder to compute, and is normally in this effort of trying to get these high-frequency waves where numerical errors become more significant, and there is this risk of generating spurious, uh, non-physical, purely computer waves. Yeah. Um, of course, there's also this, uh, this backlash that sometimes uh, with the wave phenomena, you want to find where the wave is. And then you make um, your net uh, very, very fine at certain points and want to find these high-frequency waves and um, pay a high price, um, which kind of... You always want to balance that. It's that you only have a very small part of your domain which has to be in a very um, high resolution. And uh, for the other parts, you try to be happy with a, with a larger grid. And this is kind of um, the same story from another side, or is it not? Yes, it is related to this, uh, say, key word in numerical analysis that you are referring to, which is uh, adaptivity, right? You can, you can make sure you are computing things well by, by making very tiny meshing uh, numerical approximations everywhere, but normally this is very expensive and it can be unaffordable from a computational point of view. Therefore, it's very important indeed to have some a priori analytical understanding of how waves look like so that you can tune, you can, you can mesh, you can build your numerical algorithm adaptive in, a, in an adaptive manner, adaptive to the phenomena you are, you are trying to compute. This is why even though we say that the mathematical, applied mathematical program is modeling, analysis, and then in the end numerics, it is not sequential in this way. Whenever you do numerics, you have to go back often to the analysis part to guide you in, uh, in developing a numerical algorithm which is performing well, which is robust, but also has some minimal uh, computational cost. Yes. Meaning you need a, you know, a, a, smaller, you, you, a smaller computer can suffice, less computing time, and also the possibility of then enriching your model and going towards more complex phenomena. Yeah. I was fascinated by the fact that you um, found an analytical way, as in your talk, you found an analytical way to really see where the spurious um, phenomena come from. So it's not connected to the things which we always kind of try to put under um, calculating errors, something which you cannot really um, get a hand on, just maybe get um, bounds for it. Uh, but that with analytical tools, you can really analyze this, this error, which comes predictively if you see it from the right point of view. 
was really interesting to me. The thing is that, of course, wave phenomena are so important, as you explained from the very beginning, but being a person um, doing a mathematical theory for partial differential equations, it's always this feeling, at least still in our generation, that it's much nicer to be dealing with elliptic problems and then um, trying to deal with um, time-dependent problems which have a part which is elliptic and kind of time-developing this elliptic part and to keep away from this hyperbolic equations because these they behave so badly. We don't know a lot of things about them, especially if it's more than one dimension. And uh, in the numerical scheme, you always have to be very careful to do the right thing. So as with the spurious mistakes which come and also to find maybe waves which you are not really sure where they are and so on. But then uh, during um, doing a modeling course for my students, um, uh, we do um, simulation of um, traffic. And then one of the questions is how can we model that we have um, unexpected traffic jams? which everybody sees and everybody is asking themselves how they come. And uh, in the end, we have uh, this partial differential equation, which is a transport equation, which is the easiest way to kind of have a balance law uh, for the traffic on a street where nothing else happens that just um, traffic coming on the highway and going, uh, going away and maybe um, changing with time the density of the traffic. And then, uh, because this is a hyperbolic equation, we see that it's really difficult to simulate. And then I'm always trying uh, as one very, very important result they should keep in mind is that this is really necessary to have a hyperbolic equation. So it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. If you wouldn't have it, it wouldn't be the right model. And so now I'm, I'm becoming more and more friends with the hyperbolic way to see the world. <laughs> And also one advantage is that, of course, with the hyperbolic equation, many things which you do are really local. So, for example, if you really want to use effectively um, very um, huge systems of parallel computers, this is much easier to organize for hyperbolic systems and for elliptic problems, which we are used to consider as being well-behaving because they are damping all our errors and everything. Um, it's so so very much more difficult to come up with ideas which really um, are able to paralyze everything because in the, in the elliptic equation you have that what's happening on one point immediately affects all other points in, in your domain. And so maybe uh, hyperbolic equations will be the future for the for the huge problems where we have to use um, the parallel, massively parallel computers. And so this may be an interesting um, intermediate um, situation where we are in mathematics just now. And um, not only because of the physical things which you were speaking about, so waves are everywhere and in very different shapes and very different sizes and uh, one-dimensional and many dimensions and the physicists even come up with uh, 64 dimensional waves and so on um, but maybe uh, this, this hyperbolic way could be help also to have uh, at least numerical schemes which work really effectively maybe for elliptic equations and this is um, then we have to invent everything from new <laughs> 
course, not not completely, but um, um, from a very very early state on. Uh, what I really liked as well and found really interesting is this interplay that you're always asking your equation and your numerical scheme if it's a good model. Is this a way um, you're used to work from the very beginning or is this something where you have the feeling that this developed during your career or your time as being a mathematician? You see, I was trained in, in Paris in the Laboratoire uh, Jacques Lyons, uh, so... Somehow I was also working in the group of Jacques Lyons, and uh, in this laboratory there is a, I would say, a quite multidisciplinary approach to to apply mathematics, combining, say, deep analytical tools that are often developed for dealing with, say, partial differential equations, but also a compromise with numerical analysis and the development of numerical and industrial projects, the same you do here in in Karlsruhe. So I was uh, somehow for three, four years as a PhD student and then after that as a postdoc and you know regular visitor of the of the laboratory where I have many collaborators and friends, I was always embedded in this atmosphere where there were no uh, barriers between different topics. So people were asking uh, spontaneously, naturally, questions coming from one one, one field and, and another. And uh, uh, when I was a PhD student, I was uh, somehow pushed or invited to, to work on control theoretical problems associated to wave equations. The, the question being, well, you have a vibrating structure like a building or a tower, an antenna, which is vibrating, you need to stabilize it so to keep it you know, in a, in a more or less uh, rest-stable configuration for long time intervals. Uh, then there is mathematical theory explaining you how to control, how you build feedback controllers or to, to stabilize this flexible structure. And then once you are facing these problems from a more applied uh, point of view, it comes uh, immediately, the question of, well, uh, and then once you have the analysis... Can you can you compute these controls? Can you can you build these uh, feedback controllers in the computer so that when you run the simulation, you 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 really see the dynamics you expect, and then spontaneously you get to to the issue of whether you know controlling uh, discrete processes is simply a discrete version of say controlling the continuous process. And this is where you realize that there is a, there is a gap, there is a, there is a risk. Uh, so you have to to be to be awake because uh, you know there are these high frequency waves, as I explained uh, above before, that make a big difference between discrete modeling and continuous modeling, and this often makes that uh, the, the the two phenomena from a control theoretical perspective behave uh, very differently. So in some sense we were spontaneously led to consider these uh, numerical uh, wave problems from the perspective of control theory and once you start thinking on this issue you realize that uh, you know most of the phenomena we are interested on on waves like uh, you know the emergence of nonlinear solidons or dispersion in the in the large space or velocity of propagation uh, the the shapes of the waves that are propagating how they deform and so on this has a lot to do 
with uh, the, the, the way you build the numerical schemes that will be uh, eventually employed to, to perform the numerical simulation. So uh, soon after, you forget the, the, the initial motivation, in this case coming from these very specific control theoretical questions, and then you are led to, to try to understand how these two walls compare when dealing with wave phenomena, continuous wall and the discrete wall you see in the computer. Hmm. And then, of course, it's always kind of a question if um, you find a good interpretation of what you do, yes. Yeah, and once you have this good interpretation of what you do, you realize that it can be extrapolated, applied, extended to, to many different questions, in particular in the context of inverse problem theory, which is also very very important for wave phenomena because waves are, are used in order to, to search for, say, natural resources like water or oil or investigate the, the, the inner structure of Earth, right? So you, you see how different it can be to employ continuous or discrete models and then you have to find a compromise uh, matching the two phenomena because in practical applications... Uh, there will always be, you know, someone sitting next to you doing the analysis using PDEs, but also another one uh, developing the code in the computer and try to see things. Yeah, uh, th this is kind of an um, interdisciplinary approach, um, which one could still think of being inside mathematics, just because mathematics is so broad that we have kind of what we call pure mathematics or sometimes just mathematics and the other ones are the applied ones. And doing the numerical scheme, you're always an applied mathematician and you have, in principle, um, knowledge and curiosity on both fields. Um, do you also um, collaborate with engineers? Of, um, because I think they are dealing with a lot of wave phenomena And they will probably have similar questions which we try to solve uh, with the help of our computers. Well, of course, we do collaborate now. The question is how much. But, yeah. uh, but my, probably my first uh, very interesting and rewarding experience in this field was uh, with the community of uh, aeronautical engineers. Uh, I had a PhD student in Madrid more or less 10 years back. Francisco Palacios, he's now working in, in Boeing in, in, in the California, in the U.S. At the time, he was uh, writing a PhD thesis on the optimal shape design of airfoils. And uh, this had a lot to do with the kind of uh, theory we have developed previously about how the shape of the domain in which waves are propagating is affecting the actual propagation properties of the waves and how... Uh, you know, modifying the shape, you are affecting the actual propagation properties of these waves, how these will end up, uh, you know, affecting the efficiency of, of the airfoil, meaning, you know, velocity, weight, uh, oil consumption, noise, and so on. So that was our first experience. After that, we had several others. I am at present collaborating also with a, a team in the University of Zaragoza in Spain, which are uh, very much uh, devoted to water management. And uh, so this year, as a Humboldt Fellow in the University of Erlangen, where I am uh, um, uh, involved in the team of Professor Gunther Leugering, 
they are uh, involved in a number of multidisciplinary projects, in particular for networks of gas and water mm. transportation. And it's fascinating to see, you know, these, these uh, really applied fields that, uh, you know, affect our daily life in a very, very direct manner. Um, because, of course, we all expect that when you get home, you get water or gas, uh, you know, at the kitchen or in the toilet, right? So it's, it's fascinating to see how behind these very applied aspects of our daily life, there is a huge amount of uh, mathematics of all kinds. The questions are answered um, with different tools, kind of. To provide um, gas and water is, is an old technique which was developed inside engineering sciences and they have their experiences. And then um, very often I have the feeling they only, as a last resort, they understand they can get help from mathematicians only if they are kind of at the end of everything they tried. Um, is this um, still valid thing or do you think that the picture of mathematics is becoming is changing uh, for the engineers well there is of course a delay right in, yeah. in communication it does you know us when when you are using the microphone or the radio or the telephone there is a small delay when you are embedded into a multidisciplinary uh, research uh, project or environment there is always some delay right so We as mathematicians, we need to understand what the actual problems from engineering are. And we have also to figure out how our theorems, which are the main, say, essence of the output of the mathematical research, how they have to be formulated in a way that is uh, useful for these engineers, right? So in some sense, I think the role of applied mathematician is to understand the problem, bring Uh, a solution, but not a solution in terms of epsilons and deltas as we used to do in mathematical analysis. Of course, we need to do that to have a, a deep understanding of what's going on, but then try to, say, uh, reduce, transform, traduce this into practical recipes that engineers can employ when developing the actual Uh, computer simulations of the practical, say, problems they have in hand. So we have to uh, translate our mathematical understanding in terms of, as you say, mathematical algorithms about uh, adaptive measures, time steps for simulation, domain decomposition in order to be able to, to make this computation in parallel, how to you know split the time interval into sub-intervals to be able to compute in longer time horizons and so on. Yes, and then very often you have the situation that there is just an output of a numerical simulation, very often a visualization of that, and uh, the only problem which you could formulate at that moment is this doesn't look right. So, and then you have to find, is this a problem... Um, which um, is um, an error in the program, so that you've done something wrong, which of course is very probable. But then you're looking for at each point and then you're almost sure that there is no problem with that. And um, for example, then to be able to explain that these are uh, results of spurious um, errors, which uh, you can explain even to the engineer because you have a geometrical understanding uh, where they are coming from. 
I think this can be a very illuminating um, also from, from an engineering point of view. Yeah, I, I would say that oversimplifying there are when when you are performing uh, numerical simulations of a complex, uh, say, real life phenomena, as could be the propagation of acoustic or seismic or elastic waves, there are two risks. Uh, one of them is that what you see when you compute what you see is wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And then you easily identify, well, I was looking for for a, a very oscillatory pattern, and then I see something that is totally flat, no profile. This is one scenario. But the second scenario is that uh, you might see. But the second scenario is that you might see something that looks nice, looks compatible with the phenomena you were uh, willing to to simulate or approximate, but is actually wrong, right? So this is why it's so relevant. I will say that the second scenario is more complex, right? Because the issue is whether out of a, a movie or a simulation, a picture, a, a, a graph that looks sound, how do you discriminate whether it's actually correct, whether it needs some further post-processing to make it right. And this is where our, say, work plays a key role. So previous mathematical analysis to guarantee a priori that the numerical scheme you are employing is correct so that whenever you see something on the computer, you can guarantee that this object is a real object. Yeah, and also maybe our um, uh, main competence is to be always skeptical, yes, and to see these um, limiting cases kind of uh, where I always have the feeling that my engineering colleagues are mostly optimistic. So it, if we try long enough, it will work which, of course, um, is responsible for a lot of success here in Germany and everywhere else on the world, but uh, sometimes doesn't really work out. Yeah, of course, limiting phenomena are always uh, delicate matters, right? So we know that, uh, well, if you are facing an exponentially growing function, I mean, this is easy to identify. You have functions that are growing polynomially, but then you have functions that grow very slowly, like uh, the logarithm, and then you can build functions as... Uh, Erdos did by iterating logarithms that uh, grow slower and slower and slower, log, 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 log of time, right? So, again, uh, whenever you, you face a practical problem, you run your simulation for a long time interval, in the end you have a plot, and out of this plot you have to determine whether eventually, you know, waves are going to infinity or not. This might be a delicate issue in these uh, limiting cases. Mm. And... It's also interesting um, to see that um, if you want to have a global picture, sometimes you cannot rely on the local picture because uh, locally even the exponential function uh, looks like linear function with um, small mistakes, yes. Um, you are um, at the moment mainly working at the Basque Center for Applied Mathematics. Uh, it's probably interesting for our German listeners to know more about the idea behind that. So, um, it, of course, it's self-explanatory that it's situated in the Basque part of Spain mm -hmm. and uh, that it has something to do with applied mathematics. But um, who is kind of driving or giving you uh, the money and um, the, your, your kind of aim on what to do and uh, what is this aim? So as you said, the Basque country is a small country. We are about two and a half, three million inhabitants. 
most of them in in the southern part so in spain there is also a, <clears throat> a small piece of basque country in 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 france right where you know there are well-known places like Biarritz or Bayonne or some other cities. Um, but most of the population is in the southern part of Basque Country, in, embedded in the state of Spain. Uh, we have uh, you know, an old tradition, an old history. In particular, we are very much identified with our own language, the Basque language, which doesn't have uh, Latin roots, so it's a very distinguished, uh, different language uh, from all the surrounding ones. And this is why also it's a minority language. Is uh, the you know the the survival of Basque language is not guaranteed in the long term, especially in this you know age of uh, globalization where the big languages are like uh, absorbing smaller ones. Not only in Basque country, but everywhere in the world. So, <clears throat> out of the Basque country population, maybe 25 percent are you know fluent in Basque. They use it for daily life and and in work. And uh, many others, they they well, they have a minor, uh, say, master of of, of the language. Um, <clears throat> so once the Franco dictature ended uh, back in seventy five, the Basque government autonomy was reestablished, and then the Basque country since then has had its own, uh, say, research agenda. We have uh, developed a you know big effort to to build a network of for science and technology. So we have uh, very uh, active technological centers working very close to to industry, Basque industry, which is very active and actually very much related to to Germany. You can you can take daily flights from Bilbao to to Frankfurt and to Munich and they are all full people that uh, well some of them are tourists and students but most of them are are workers that are commuting in order to develop some international say affairs or or, or projects and um, we have also uh, a big uh, public university two or three other smaller private universities in Basque country but 10 years back, the Basque government identified that there was also the need of uh, reinforces the, reinforcing the system by building some basic uh, research-oriented uh, research center. And uh, in this effort, uh, the Basque government, the first instrument that the Basque government uh, created was Iker Basque. Iker in Basque means research. The name Iker Basque refers to the Basque Foundation for Science who is hiring internationally scientists from all origins in all disciplines. And in particular, we are a bunch of uh, mathematicians that were hired. I came back from Madrid back in 2008, taking this uh, opportunity. And in addition to this, they created a number of uh, research centers in different topics, in neurosciences, in material sciences, and also in applied mathematics. So this is the so-called... Basque Center of Applied Mathematics that I had the, the honor and the privilege of being the first uh, scientific director. And uh, well, when, when in this brainstorming of what the center should be, we thought that it should be something sitting precisely in between the university where all disciplines of mathematics are, are, are developed uh, equally, pure and applied. And also this technological centers that are very much oriented to, to projects and to problem solving, developing uh, very specific engineering solutions for industrial problems. 
and we decided to develop a center that should be precisely in between, right? So bringing the knowledge of mathematics uh, to these other teams that are more technologically oriented. And this is how they become started as a, say, meeting point of both uh, pure and uh, science and applied-oriented uh, scientific, uh, say, uh, research. And so far, it has been working very well. We are you know, uh, um, nowadays we have like ten groups uh, working in Beckham. Some of them, like the one I am the, the leader of, more say emerging from mathematics. But some others coming from different disciplines like physics, uh, informatics, uh, engineering, that are more oriented to questions in energy, material sciences, data sciences, networks, uh, internet, uh, electricity, gas, water, etc. Mm. Yes, this is something which we also try to do here at KIT um, to have new ideas for energy. And this is a really wide field. And um, since we are here working together with this um, research center, which now is Campus Nord, um, there are really a special um, possibilities here for our students and also for our researchers. And I'm always curious to see how this um, uh, idea to try to work more uh, in between disciplines is tried out in other places. That's why I was also asking about this, how you try to do this. Because in a way, uh, to have a beginning, probably it just needs two or three um, really um, interested and energetic people who can do a lot of things. But then in the end, um, if you want to have um, reliable experiments, for example, you also need uh, partners which have the money and um, have the machines really to do that. And um, of course, we can do a lot of things um, without uh, having the big machines. We have we are having a little bit of fun yesterday that we mathematics, mathematicians are really cheap persons because we just need paper and pencil and sometimes a, a computer, which nowadays uh, need not be so expensive anymore. Uh, but nevertheless, if we are trying to to do the things which um, we were talking about, um, the really important wave propagation problems. In the end, we will we need. So, if you are speaking about these airfoils, you can't do this without having measurements, uh, which are not cheap at all. And um, trust people who did these measurements in a way that you can really read off something from them. Yeah. So the key word for these are networking and collaboration, right? Yeah. And then, of course, we need an atmosphere where mathematicians are welcome to do that, and where we mathematicians welcome questions from engineering uh, sciences. Um, this is... Um, an, um, you were talking about the fact that you uh, went to Paris to do your PhD, uh, which sounds um, really very special and interesting. So what was your idea when you started to, to look for a career? Did you always want to become a mathematician? Or did you just want to go to Paris? Or what was... Your so, idea when you were so young? Sorry, when I was young, I always liked mathematics, right? So, and, and for me, probably among the topics uh, we were learning in school, mathematics was the one that was more natural for me, in one in which I was finding more 
more easiness, uh, right, uh, to, to, to manipulate in particular all these, uh, say, numbers, combinatorics, uh, you know, mathematical operations. So I was always uh, interested in mathematics. When, when it came the time to choose, uh, you know, what uh, so career to, to study at the university, I was, I was very confused, as, as many young people are when, when they are 18 and they have to, to choose uh, finally uh, one discipline. Uh, I remember talking to my elder, uh, elder brother who, you know, I was discussing this issue with him and he told me, well, but in the end, Enrique, what is, what is the topic you like more? And I said mathematics. So then he told me, why, why don't you then simply, you know, register at university as a student for mathematics? And this is what I did. So the mathematics at the time in Spain were very much pure mathematics oriented. Um, but by the time I finished my uh, graduate courses, we already had the opportunity to learn about mathematical analysis, but also numerical analysis, probabilities. So I was more interested on these applied aspects. At the time, the Basque government already, this is back in '84. The Basque government had already, uh, you know, a program to provide uh, PhD fellowships to Basque, you know, born or inhabitant students uh, to to write a PhD in some of the existing programs. But at the time, the program, the doctoral program at our university, the University of Basque Country, was was still on the on its infancy. And the recommendation I got from the professors in the department was to, to go abroad. And in particular, I was offered uh, this possibility to go to this laboratory that already had some links with uh, the Basque Country and, and also with other universities in Spain. Uh, at the time, it was called Laboratoire d'Analyse Numérique, Numerical Analysis Laboratory, in the University Pierre Marie Curie in, in Paris, which is downtown Paris in Jussieu near the Cartier Latin, so it's a beautiful place to be, to be a student. And uh, this is how I started. I did my, my master courses there, I passed the exams, and then I started working with my thesis advisor, Alain Aro, who, was, uh, who is a mathematical analyst, mainly interested on the analytical aspects of partial differential equations, and in particular, wave-like equations. So the first topic I... I worked on with uh, my advisor was uh, what is the time <coughs> decay rate of wave equations whenever there is some damping built in the model. And, and this soon after, uh, through the advice of Jacques Lyons, who was a, you know, a very uh, renewed and recognized mathematician working uh, in different disciplines, but in particular in, in system control theory, this led me very naturally to, to analyze more, uh, say, uh, complex issues uh, coming from, say, uh, system control theory, but always in connection with the wave equation. Yeah. Yeah. And um, nevertheless, um, this was kind of um, always with the plan to, to go back or just with the plan to learn more? Well, that was... Originally, the plan was to learn more and, uh, you know, to, to, to become, uh, you know, to at least to, to, to be acquired of with uh, some good understanding of, of a topic. 
Uh, then soon after, when I finished my PhD back in 87 or 88, I had to decide what to do, whether I should continue in Paris or in France or go abroad or come back. And then I had the opportunity to, to take a, a professor, associate professor position in Universidad Autónoma de Madrid, where some say uh, the former generations of uh, professors there, in particular in, in, in PD analysis, they were interested in hiring uh, younger people with, uh, say, bringing new topics in, in, in partial differential equations. This is how I had the opportunity to, to go to Madrid. Uh, soon after, there was an opening in, uh, for a professorship position in the Faculty of Chemistry in Universidad Complutense de Madrid, which is the, somehow the, the center, the most traditional university in Madrid. I took this position in 1990, and I was there, I would say, 10 years, uh, working a lot, many students uh, teaching. This is how... You know, I, I really grew as a, as a professional of mathematics in all aspects, also learning how to organize a team, how to apply for grants, uh, being involved in the departmental life, uh, everything related to the administration of a laboratory, funding, uh, and so on. And uh, again, uh, it was back in 2001 when I had the opportunity to go back to Universidad Autónoma uh, which is outside downtown Madrid in a very in a very nice uh, campus. Uh, Universidad Autónoma is a bit smaller, so more research oriented, with a a, a very uh, dynamical mathematical department, uh, having all disciplines together. And I was there until in 2008. I got the opportunity to go back to Basque Country and do you know have the this experience of uh, starting up uh, become so uh, finally uh, we know what the end of the story was i went uh, to paris in 84 to come back to basque country but it took uh, 24 years yes and of course a lot of uh, places where one can learn something um, is the situation in spain um, such that madrid is is the heart of all the culture and education Like we have the feeling it's in, in France that everything has to be in Paris or it's not really valid? I don't think so. So Spain in that sense is much more distributed. So there is definitely a, a very strong uh, university tradition in Madrid, but also in some other uh, cities like uh, Valencia or mm. Sevilla or Barcelona, of course. Uh, other traditional universities that are smaller but still very, you know, very, uh, very uh, high standards like Valladolid, Salamanca, and so on. Our university in Basque Country is younger, so the University of Basque Country was uh, created 40 years ago, essentially putting together the, the already existing schools of engineering and economics to create a whole university. Nowadays, uh, the University of Basque Country, our public university, the unique public university in Basque Country, is uh, you know is a large, medium, large-sized university in Spain. We have 40,000 students, all disciplines together, different campuses in the main cities of Basque Country, mainly uh, San Sebastian, Bilbao, and Vitoria, but also some other small smaller campuses and a school in, in, in cities like Eibar, the, the village where I was born. And um, so all this process has been extremely uh, positive, I would say. 
in the last few years because of the economical crisis uh, definitely things uh, had to slow down because of the diminishing of the funding but uh, i think we are ready for the for the next uh, step it seems that uh, economy is evolving well and uh, I think now is, is probably time that Spain takes uh, some big decisions on scientific policy to see whether we still want to have, say, 50, uh, say, more or less equal universities in all the cities of Spain, or we want to rather uh, try to focus on a specific discipline so that uh, universities become more distinguished one from, from another. But this is something that... Uh, somehow belongs to decision makers and I think uh, this is somehow on the desk of, of, the, of the ministers of uh, higher education and research in Spain. Yes, but nevertheless to have a good education um, for um, most of the population um, is probably always a good thing for the future. Well, probably one of the main uh, successes of, uh, of the recent uh, history in Spain in the last 40 years when we moved from a dictature to a democratic uh, modern country is the fact that uh, nowadays uh, I think we can claim that uh, every kid, every, every young person can have access to, to a good public university and have a seat in, in the classroom to, to really become a professional on the topic uh, he or she likes. And this is certainly one of the main uh, successes of, uh, of the overall, say, uh, normalization process that Spain has undergone in the last four decades, yes. Yes, in a way it's almost unbelievable, yes, um, having... Um And knowing how the situation was 40 years ago and um, how it uh, changed over 20 years very rapidly and still changing up to now. Yeah, indeed. In that, in that uh, sense, I think uh, Spain is uh, you know, internationally recognized as a good example of, uh, say, country that was uh, capable of moving from a, say, old regime into a more, say, modern and and transparent uh, one. Uh, socially, Spain has been always very open, and, and maybe uh, the default was that uh, the, the political regime was not really fitting well with the sociology of the country. Now that things are matching better, definitely the, the country is evolving in a, in a much more uh, positive uh, manner. In that sense, also, we, we were very lucky to, to have a Spain uh, glue uh, to, to the European continent. So somehow we are one of these southern countries that could have, uh, you know, by a split. We are a peninsula. So if the peninsula had been an island, I don't know whether all this process would have been so, so smooth. In, in some sense, uh, from Spain, in Basque Country in particular, you drive one hour from Bilbao and you are in France. And, and then you are connected with, uh, say, the European uh, culture and tradition, and this helps a lot. Somehow, when you go southern Spain and you get to Gibraltar, and you see that uh, there are like 10, 15 miles uh, of, of, of sea uh, separating you from Africa, you go to Africa, and you see how drastically everything changes, right? So prices of everything are maybe uh, 10 or 20%. 
but also the salaries of people, you know, the, the quality of the education system, the health system drops uh, significantly. So in some sense, uh, this is a, a geographical accident, but Spain was lucky enough to be, to be on the north side. Now it's a challenge to all Europeans to, to see whether we are, we are able to, say, to share this wealth with uh, you know, our, our neighbors, right, Africa. Yeah. So maybe this is a good moment to stop our conversation, at least for today. And I have to thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. I thank you very much. It was, it was really great. <laughs> <laughs>